0: This is Global Humanist Shop Talk, I'm M.L. Clark. The Russian president says a military operation is now underway in eastern Ukraine. Ukraine has declared a state of emergency. Warning about for weeks is now underway and there are reports of explosions and attacks. There has been major Ukrainian cities starting in the city of Kiev. When Russia invaded Ukraine in February 2022, its actions set off the largest European migration of human beings during war that we had seen since World War II. In the year since, over 19 million Ukrainians have fled the region, but not all have stayed abroad. In fact, over 10.6 million later returned, some to fight, some to resettle in different parts of the country, and some because they preferred to take their chances in Ukraine, rather than continue as refugees in the rest of Europe. Another 8.1 million continue to live as displaced people, with about half that number settled in Europe. Another 8 million are internally displaced, meaning that they have lost their original homes, but remain inside Ukraine's borders. This mass mobilization would have been striking enough if not for the fact that Western Europe and the US also demonstrated a cruel, hard truth in their response to Ukrainian flight, that some lives were considered worthier than others. As the world watched, these regions changed visa standards and local accommodation structures practically overnight to receive as many Ukrainians in need as possible. And yes, again, many Ukrainians ultimately found those accommodations less welcoming than the idea of returning to their war-torn country. But by and large, Ukrainian refugees have received a much more open invitation to resettle than people from many other war-torn and struggling countries in the world. In particular, people displaced from Syria, Afghanistan and African nations to Europe, as well as people displaced from Central American countries and Mexico to the southern U.S. border, were all grimly looking on as Ukrainian refugees gained immediate special treatment, priority access, in our hurting world. For me, one of the worst examples, or at least the most heartbreaking, lay with an episode of This American Life, where journalist James Spring visited a refugee camp in Tijuana, Mexico, specifically for Ukrainian refugees. There, this seasoned reporter, who had spent a great deal of time with refugee camps in the region, was shocked to see the difference in facilities and resources made available to Ukrainian refugees, who were also expected only to be there for a few days, The outpouring of U.S. support for these refugees was obvious and abundant. He then visited a nearby refugee camp where a hardworking woman was making the best she could of what few resources were available for Central American refugee families who were in it for the long haul, waiting at that border for months and months on end with little hope of entry. The two of them returned to the Ukrainian facility where the woman's can-do attitude transformed To see what proper support, proper funding, proper resources could look like. The Ukrainian facility had resources it didn't even really need for how quick a turnaround its residents were receiving with Border Patrol, while her own facility was struggling to get by with materials for the children, clothes for the families, everything. It was a painful episode to listen to because one could hear in real time as she realized her life's struggle did not need to be as hard as it was. And neither did the struggle of all the families that she tried to serve in her refugee camps. That a different outcome had been possible if only the collective will had existed among US citizens to respond differently to the plight of Latin American caravans of desperate human beings showing up at the border. Racism, yes, that played a role in these decisions in the US and in Europe. But so too did a larger, messier narrative of human struggle. Russia's invasion was a spectacular and sudden event, but also one that many could convince themselves would be over one way or another very soon. The Ukrainians fleeing were less likely to need a forever home in another country, or so the thinking went at least. The real fear in many parts of the world was of displaced people from different cultural contexts, who are looking for a new place to settle permanently. What would that look like? How would it affect everyday life for native citizens? Those fears are tied into a peculiar way of thinking about borders and human migration, a very new way of thinking about both when we look at the history of the human species. That way of thinking about lines drawn on a map has also caused tremendous strife for humans over the last century especially, as borders become inherent sites of conflict panic, and ultimately loss. But now the world is undergoing a set of changes that don't care about borders. As the impact of climate change is felt in ever-worsening natural events, droughts, floods, hurricanes, tornadoes, raging wildfires, shifting territories of disease, internal and cross-border placement is surging. We currently have 90 million displaced people in the world, according to the latest UN estimates, and an international think tank called the IEP suggests that we could be looking at as high a number as 1.2 billion globally displaced humans by 2050 due to climate change and natural disasters. And if that number seems herculean, impossible, consider that over the past 30 years, the number of people just living on high-risk coastal areas where rising sea levels stand to take out the land entirely has risen from 160 to 260 million. Three decades. 90% of those are from developing countries and small island states. There will be many reasons that people have to migrate in response to environmental pressures, the literal loss of land beneath our feet is just one. Are we ready for a huge transformation in human behavior to match the scale of this need? Not yet, and not even close. And that's partly because of how much we've built our sense of self, our sense of community identity around rigid notions of borders between nations that did not always exist, especially not in their current formations. But even if we can't halt the ongoing impact of climate change, we can do the work of changing ourselves, of making ourselves readier, that is, to imagine new possibilities for human relationships in the uncertain world ahead. After all, it's that mental flip that moment when we better understand how agency can be enhanced or lessened by our policies and cultures, which this humanist podcast always sets out to explore, one everyday object or concept at a time. You're listening to Global Humanist Shop Talk, and for six episodes, we're moving through different landscapes in the world of mobility rights and displaced people, our past migrations, our present crises, and the future of movement we deserve. But first, back to Ukraine, because Russia's invasion had another strong impact on our environmental crisis. Ukraine is one of the world's primary breadbaskets, and its shipping routes of grain have been especially important these last few years as the world tries to address the brutal conditions of drought affecting wide swaths of Africa and the Middle East. All through the summer of 2022, the United Nations and Turkey, among other international actors, struggled to broker a series of deals whereby some 600 ships carrying corn, wheat, sunflower products and other foodstuffs could finally leave Ukrainian ports after Russian military vessels had been blockading them in the Black Sea. This brokered deal didn't fully address the backlog that had been building since the start of the war, but it was a critical win for the world all the same. The way our world works after all, it's not just the grain itself that needed to be freed up to literally arrive in other countries desperate for food aid. The act of freeing up that grain also helped to lower grain prices the world over for existing supplies, reducing key living costs that were deepening the global food security crisis most everywhere. But among the countries who were directly waiting for food relief, the situation was indeed especially dire. Ships freed up from Ukrainian ports went to Ethiopia, Yemen, Djibouti, Somalia, and Afghanistan. So what's going on in these parts of the world? Oh, you know, the usual. The Horn of Africa is another name for the Somali Peninsula. Somalia protrudes from the northeastern edge of Africa. Ethiopia and Djibouti are its western neighbors, with Djibouti lying at the narrowest point of the Gulf of Aden. Across that waterway lies Yemen. And for the last four years, the Horn of Africa and surrounding countries have been experiencing a worse drought than it's seen in the last 40 years after four failed rainy seasons starting in 2019. Around 18.4 million people living in the region are gripped with extreme hunger because the land has simply dried up, devastating life and livelihood for millions of farmers in the region. Meanwhile, Afghanistan is also undergoing a severe drought, which was compounded by an intense heat wave and multiple wildfires, followed by a sudden rainy season and flash flooding across scorched land that couldn't absorb the water properly. Worse still, the region also endured a massive earthquake in June 2022 that killed over 1,000 people and destroyed around 70% of homes in the surrounding area. Afghan men are donating organs, and selling off their daughters in desperate hopes of acquiring enough money to feed the rest of their families. Which brings us to the complex intersectionality of environmental change. What a lot of folks in the West fail to realize is that these natural phenomena never operate in a vacuum. Many of the hardest hit in the Horn of Africa and Afghanistan were already displaced internally or across borders by regional violence up to and including war. In Afghanistan, there are persecuted ethno-religious minorities that have had to flee under Taliban rule, whereas Somalia has been in a state of civil war for decades, with even recent moves toward coherent and stable government thrown into disarray and infighting every time a new election needs to be called. This year, too, when a series of earthquakes struck Turkey and Syria, significant portions of the people affected were refugees escaping the war in Syria, and many of them had already been displaced multiple times before this devastating event, which killed 47,000 and displaced millions. Likewise in Bangladesh, home to the world's largest refugee camp, similar complex intersections are playing out every time disaster hits. Fires sometimes rage through the overcrowded Kutapalong refugee camp which holds some 880,000 human beings, and so too do the ruinous effects of monsoon season. Kutapalong is home especially to Rohingya people fleeing genocidal violence in Buddhist-dominant Myanmar, which is also under severe threat from climate change. A country alternately experiencing drought and flooding events in devastating measure with erratic rainfall patterns and unseasonally high temperatures destroying local agricultural yields. Which brings us ultimately to the storytelling problem that exists on the world stage. We still too often see civil war and interstate war at a remove from environmental conditions. Too often we see the fact of, say, ethno-religious persecution in certain world regions and consider it somehow separate. From the underlying instability and uncertainty of related state apparatuses. Which is not to say that people aren't being persecuted over differences in demographic. They most certainly are. But it's important to remember that something far more fundamental often drives our perceived need to fixate on demographic difference at all. And that is the question and the perception of local scarcity. Is there enough to go around? Is the world around me safe enough for my sense of my countrymen to include people from all other manner of demographic background? Because even if tensions existed, Between different religious and ethnic groups prior to a huge transformation in a nation's ability to offer food and livelihood for all, there is no denying that massive reductions in agricultural yield and increasing volatility in local weather events, along with deepening probabilities that someone's home is soon going to get burned down or swept away, don't make this situation any easier. When there isn't enough to go around, or where there even exists the fear that there soon won't be enough to go around. We humans are very good at starting to rationalize for ourselves who among us might be taking more than their fair share. Who among us needs to leave, that is, so that the rest of us may thrive. This is why one rhetorical claim in the West is especially counterproductive when it comes to processing the rise in global refugees. Many especially from right-leaning political groups are often fond of saying that people fleeing from war should quote-unquote stay and fight instead of quote-unquote running away. Underpinning this idea is a simplistic understanding of the pressure points that have created and will continue to create more refugees in our current and coming world. Some refugees are quite plainly displaced from their regions due to the direct impact of environmental change. Their valleys got flooded. Their homes and crops were burned. But as climate change leaves more and more regions undergoing extreme scarcity, it also increases the likelihood of resource-informed civil wars. And then, when someone needs to flee to save their life or the lives of their families, is it entirely accurate to call them simply a refugee of war? I suspect that we like the idea of wartime refugees, of people fleeing from persecution for their beliefs, because this kind of worldly problem is also flattering in a way. It feels right for human beings, superior species that we are, to be dealing with cerebral problems ideological differences above all else. The idea, conversely, that so many of our major worldly conflicts might be caused by something as basic as not having adequate access to nutrition, home, and livelihood, or even simply from fear that we won't have access to nutrition, home, and livelihood for long if our regional scarcity crises continue is much more in keeping with the conflicts that plague other species, supposedly lesser forms of life. Are we humans or are we rats? Environmental change is going to require us to humble ourselves before our own animality. To recognize that as high-minded and cerebral as we'd love to think our greatest conflicts always are, we're all more or less looking for the same thing, to live well to live with personal safety and the promise of social improvement. And it's going to require us to tear down some of our most arbitrary cerebral frameworks, including the notion of a rigid border and the notion that displacement pressures are something that only affect other people, other countries. And that's going to take work, some of which we'll get to here in this six-part series Which is why, in the next episode, we'll be going back a bit in human history, way back in human history, to reflect on migration and its role in our species' destiny. Because as much as we might have grown fond of thinking ourselves secure in our own homes and our own borders, the truth is that we're living in an historical blip in the story of our species. And what comes next for us might very well be lands we visited before. This has been Global Humanist Shop Talk with M. L. Clark. Maurizio Ferraz is my one-man dream team of an audio production specialist. Studio space and resources were provided by Agencia El Grifo, and all further credits for cited and referenced content can be found in attached episode notes. All of this would not have been possible without my patrons, the vast majority of whom support me through Patreon. You can also follow my work at Better Worlds Theory, a weekly newsletter at mlclark.substack.com. None of us excels without the support of a community, and I am deeply thankful to have found mine. Be well, be kind, and seek justice where you can.